That wasn't me. It was a wake-up call. Um, God didn't bless me with uh, Pastor Josh's uh, heights, so I'm not going to stand over there because <laughs> I'll disappear. Uh, welcome to here. <laughs> he said he was going to make a stool for the elders. I'm not going to stand in the stool either. I haven't used this stool since I was five. Um, it's a beautiful day at El Paso Bible Church. It's good to see you guys. And it is October the 1st. Can you believe that? Uh, so uh, just glad to be here this morning. And I want to share a few announcements before we go on to our scripture reading. Uh, just ongoing events. We have a uh, youth group every Sunday at 6 p.m. We're uh, in the middle of a study in the book of Jonah titled Reroute It. Uh, I see that the young adult Bible study is back on the schedule as well. And they are meeting in the new building, Building B. Um, like it doesn't say a room number, so I guess you'll, you'll have to look for them. Uh, and... Um, retreat this coming this week actually this weekend october 6th through the 9th this is a women's retreat in uh, lubbock texas so if you haven't signed up for that there's still i would presume a still an opportunity to do that uh, we are having this is not on the bulletin yet but it will be next week uh, we're having a trunk retreat october the 31st and uh, it's you know fairly simple we've, we've we've done a number of them in the past um so if you are interested in helping with that, you bring some candy, you bring your car, you open the trunk, and you pass out candy uh, to uh, the trick-or-treaters. Uh, we will also have uh, gospel coins and gospel tracks for uh, kids coming by so they could uh, be introduced to Jesus. And I think that's it for the announcements. There's more ongoing events there in your bulletin. You can check it out. And uh, with that said, I'm going to read Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to stand over here now. <laughs> Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, or a better translation, if we believe not, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Let's pray and then have a time of worship. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to come together as a church and, and worship you and be encouraged by the teaching of your word. And we want to praise your name today uh, in song and prayer and scripture reading, and we ask that we may uh, be able to accomplish that. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us for a time of worship? Mercy is a song. 
freedom is a
Hallelujah, blessed. I'm so blessed. Hallelujah, blessed. Trouble knocking at my door today. I ain't gonna let it in. Worry wanna steal my joy away. I ain't gonna let it in. It's on my best day. I'm a child of God. On my worst day. I'm a child of God. Oh, every day is a good day.
may be seated. Well, good morning. This is an appropriate sized pulpit here, no matter what Jacob says about it, but I believe I am going to have to make an analog that is about four inches shorter. The other one, just FYI, this is the first time I get to put this to use had this wood for two years. We finally ripped the top off my shop, and I realized I needed to go ahead and use the wood. Uh, had the wood sitting there for two years. Uh, the other one only comes up to just below my belt. So, uh, you know, if I have my Bible sitting on that, it's like I'm looking at the ground uh, to see my Bible if it's resting there. So this has uh, been a long time coming, and I'm loving it. So if you don't love it, keep it to yourself. All right. Anyway, so we're going to finish First Peter today. Uh, which has been, uh, if you're a 13-year-old pastor's kid, this is a really long time coming. So he feels like we should have done this in two or three weeks. Uh, But we are going to finish today talking about this particular character of who we are as choice aliens. Children, I'm sorry, I didn't dismiss you. Y'all go to Children's Church today. We have both classes. It's not Communion Sunday this week, so adventurers and explorers, go. You guys usually go without me telling you if I forget today. All right. So we're going to finish discussing this book. Well, we're going to continue into Second Peter. And though Second Peter is written, uh, in my understanding, by the same individual, uh, it is a different character to the book, different audience. And so today we're going to finish talking about being choice aliens, right? The choice has to do with our preciousness, our choiceness in God's plan and purpose, the place that we hold in achieving the purpose that he has for us, modified, I guess, in a sense, maybe not modified, but intrinsic to that is our character as aliens, people who are strangers in the world. That's not a popular word here on the border to say alien. It's not. A variety of reasons. It's still the word required by the Texas law, by the way. That's the only word in the law is alien. So you can't refer to somebody's legal status any other way under the state laws of Texas because of its meaning. 
Because it means that somebody is a stranger in a place. Somebody has, that has no legal right to be where they are. Someone who is a citizen of somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we are aliens here in this world who are choice according to God's purpose and plan. That's our identity. It comes with some intrinsic character traits. It, it is our purpose, right? But it comes with blessings. Blessings that include simply being regenerated, passing from death into life, being born again. It comes with an inheritance that is future, that is secure and reserved for us, ready already, waiting for us in heaven. It comes with a tremendous number of blessings. It comes with some obligations, right? And these are the things that we ought to remember. Some of you are probably saying, Josh, you have repeated those every Sunday for months. You're right. I'm glad you finally remember them enough to be irritated by my repetition. That's my goal. Slight agitation using divine inspired words from Scripture. You remember things, right? I don't know, none of y'all were probably in the, in the San Antonio area during the early 90s. There was a local insurance company called Rodney D. Young Insurance. Anybody remember those commercials? Anybody there? Richard knows. Think Young, Rodney D. Young, the most irritating caveman, ridiculously cheap garbage commercials. But to this day, you can sing the jingle and see the horrible costumes. Horrible, horrible, cheapest marketing available, and yet you, you remember them because of their repetition. We're going to repeat that. We have some obligations to love one another from the heart. Love, remember, is an activity, not a feeling. It is not devoid of feelings, but it is an activity that you can engage in despite your momentary feelings to the contrary, okay? So I'm not telling you don't feel loving towards somebody, but even if you are feeling out of love with everything to do with the church or the other children of God or the family that He's blessed you with, the household of God, you can still be observant of the command to love by living sacrificially and seeking the best interest of another. You can worry about your feelings tomorrow when you're not out of creamer for your coffee or whatever puts you in a bad mood today. But today you can be obedient, you can fulfill the command if you live life sacrificially with the best interest of the family of God forefront, at the forefront of your mind. It requires us to long for the pure milk of the Word, to choose today not to get bored by the Word of God. We hear this complaint as expository preachers a lot. Um, some even go so far as to say this is easy and lazy to teach verse by verse. There's a very well-known fool who wrote that down in a book published widely. Um, I won't comment any further on that, but if teaching the Word of God is boring to you, a large portion of that responsibility is in your lap as grown-ups. <laughs> you need to choose not to be bored by it. I, I have covenanted with you and, and committed to to be as good as I can be and be respectful of the text to be as interesting as I can possibly be. 
with it, to open it up, to expose it, to explain it. But we need to love it and to long for it and choose to do that today. It comes with that blessing and with that obligation. It comes with blessings and obligations in regards to our family of Christ, right? Love one another from the heart. We are supposed to follow the structure that God has ordained. There are two different sections on that. Uh, Peter talks about obeying the government, obeying your husband, wives. That's only to the wives, right? We have to clarify that these days. Wives are supposed to obey their husbands. Those have gender in Scripture. Only one way that works. But then he opens another section. He has a long time. He's talking about suffering in this short little book. Suffering for doing what is right. Suffering for keeping your behavior excellent among the nations. Doing what is right. But one of the blessings that we have, and we're going to see that again today, is that at at bare minimum, no matter where our head is at, no matter where our heart is at, no matter where we, we feel that we're at in our maturity or our preparation for the experiences that we're having, that we have a family of God around us to help us through those things. When we're suffering for doing what is right, that's not a unique experience. We're going to talk about that some more today. But it requires us largely when we encounter the suffering that we have in our life, right, all the levels, Christ guarantees that if you desire to live a godly life, you will suffer. That's a guarantee. It requires us to perceive rightly where we are in God's plan and purpose, right? We are in a very biblical sense, and we'll see that again today because the Bible is full of repetition. It's not just Pastor Josh. That's where I get it. We will see that we are secure in our identity in Christ. We are secure in our future in Christ. And in the process, Christ is giving us freedom progressively from bondage to sin, from the mastery of sin in our lives. And every once in a while, I have somebody come up and say to me, with pride dripping from their eyeballs and their lips, I am free from the bondage of sin. No, you're not, because I can, the pride is oozing from you right now. Pride is a sin, by the way. No, you're not. You know you're not. We know we're not. What you're doing is you're confusing your identity with your temporal experience. Your identity is secure. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Your future is secure. We will talk about that. But you are being freed from it, some, in some measure, by the faithful experience of suffering for doing what is right in this life. And that's not what we want to hear, right? That God is saving us from the mastery of sin in our lives today by suffering. That's what he's doing. He is doing that. Now, I'm not saying that he is the cause of the suffering, but he is utilizing that suffering in our lives in that way. And you want Sesame Street Jesus. Don't you? 
You're not going to admit it to me because I just said it like that with some measure of derision. Only one person. Mary's nodding her head. She knows that she would, she knows what I'm talking about here. You want Sesame Street, Jesus, that teaches you can just decide whatever you want to be, and if you work hard and believe in yourself, you can do it, and you can be it, and you can relieve these suffering things in your life. The last thing that you and I want to do is to be delivered from the suffering that God has purposed to use in our lives, because it's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for us for joy, for peace, for mature faith. We want, but we, we want to be delivered from difficulties, we think. It's a very childish way to view them, frankly. We want to be delivered from them, but the, the transformation that is required in us so that we can think the way Christ thought is that we need in some measure to experience some of the things that Christ experienced. We need to be motivated prophetically for what the future holds for us that is guaranteed, reserved, and ready. And that is a process. That's what Scripture, one of the things that Scripture calls being saved, being delivered. So the good news is we normally, if we're living faithfully, have an abundance of opportunities to suffer faithfully. And right after that, Peter talks to the elders. That long section. Elders, therefore. You guys lead people to live their lives prophetically by examples. Be faithful in doing the work to shepherd There's a difference, right? I've told you that we get lost in the weeds a lot of times in the modern church about focusing on people who are qualified, whose resume is acceptable to be considered to be an elder. But then we really don't have expectations. Some of the candidates may not have any expectation that the thing is work. That the shepherding ministry of an elder in the local church is a holistic ministry to ensure that the sheep under your care, under our care, are cared for. And not just in one way, not just teaching. Shepherding is a very holistic activity. So he says, guys, you need to lead because the sheep need to be shepherded. They need to be cared for. They also need an example of how to engage in suffering for doing what is right. And if you're an elder shepherding according to what Scripture teaches, then you will suffer as an example to others. And you will receive, he says, the unfading crown of glory, a unique reward given only to elders who shepherd the flock according to biblical standards. And he moved from there to the noobs, remember? The new men, the guys that aren't holding an office but are training to hold the office. Not just youngsters, but the guys that are engaged in leadership is the way I understand it. Those guys are to do what their elders say to do. Just like everywhere else in properly exercised leadership, 
so that the ones in the overseer role bear the liability while you are being trained to know what to do. Right? You ever worked for a manager that threw you under the bus every other day? I have. I worked for a pastor like that. I don't know if he knew what he was doing, but he did it every day for two years. Threw me under the bus every chance he got. Massive turnover as a result in any environment. In business, you're not guaranteed to suffer for making right decisions, right? Right? Normally, like in business, if you're selling stuff and you make the right decisions, you buy the right product at the right price and you sell it to the right customer at the right price, you make the right amount of money and the suffering is lessened by that process. In the church, when you shepherd well without compulsion, freely, without pride, with humility, the suffering gets bigger and bigger and greater and badder. So noobs, you need to pay attention to the process. Because nowhere else in the world offers the guarantee like being an elder does. No other thing that you will do in your life guarantees that the more successful you are, the more you will suffer that I can find. But it's connected here. Well, and then he goes on. Actually, sorry, we missed a spot. He talks to everybody. Put on humility. Whether you have it or not, put it on. You weren't born humble. You were born a narcissist. I was born a narcissist. I'm not excluding myself. You, us, humanity, all humans. You ever met a baby that wasn't a cute little barfing, pooping narcissist? They demand immediate attention, and they don't care if the world is on fire. You're going to feed them or change their diaper or wipe their nose. It's a good thing they're cute. None quite as cute as my new grandson, but still. Be hum humble. But Peter connects it. He says, if you clothe yourself with humility, then you will be able to cast your anxieties on him and be free from it. If you rid yourself of prideful interactions with the local body of Christ, then you can live an anxiety-free life. That's connect. It says be sober. It doesn't mean that the church is uh, a massive uh, AA meeting, right? We've turned sober into being free from the control of substances. Now, if you're going to be in bondage to alcohol or drugs or something like that, you're going to have trouble being sober. We're going to talk about that. But in the Bible, being sober doesn't only mean not to be filled with wine, for that is dissipation. It means to be serious and mature, self-controlled, and aware. So there are plenty of people who aren't drunks <laughs> who aren't sober. Right? If we, just, if we make that the standard, are you aware of what's going on around you? Are you self-controlled? Are you serious? Those are different standards. Let's read verse 8. It says, be sober. Be sober. Be on the alert. Parallel ideas. Because your accuser or your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to consume. 
The second command, almost redundant, be alert, be aware, be serious, self-controlled. And the reason you need to be aware of your surroundings is because your surroundings are not without threat. Your surroundings are not without threat. You have an adversary, an accuser. I prefer to say that that's more biblical, I think. He is the accuser of the brethren, the devil is. He no longer can accuse you of anything before God the Father, right? Because you are clothed with Christ. That is your identity that has been put upon you as a believer. But he doesn't get the picture. He still accuses. He still accuses me. Everyone suffers from some, to some degree with what they call imposter syndrome. Anybody? You all know what that is? No? Imposter syndrome is when you are in a position, doing the best of your, you know, other people put you in that position and qualified you, examine your qualifications. But you're haunted by the feeling that you're really just faking it. really just faking it. I think everybody has that to some degree. Am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I really qualified? This is scary. (laughs) The accuser does that. The adversary does that. The accuser, the devil prowls is so more poetic, but the word is actually just peripateo. He walks around. Peripatel, just, you know, that was the word that the New Testament uses. As you go, as you walk, go through your life. He's not on the hunt, officially. We don't have our resident lion expert here, but I'm going to speak about lions anyway. So we got some hunters here, right? Anybody a hunter? Any, anybody ever deer hunted? Because that's similar, right? Okay, so you're hunting a ruminant like a lion does. That's what Jordan Peterson's diet is. They call it the lion diet because all he eats is ruminants. So it's like a deer. So what you do, right, first thing when you gear up for your deer hunt is you go get your cymbals and your saxophone out, right? And you sit in the blind and you get your Bluetooth karaoke machine and you blow your saxophone and your cymbals through the karaoke machine so you can get ready to hunt the deer. Is that what you do? No, that would be ludicrous. Lions aren't ludicrous when they hunt. You know how far you can hear a lion's roar? Like five miles. It's intimidating. We used to have a membership to the San Antonio Zoo, which meant we could go at like seven in the morning. So we took all the kids when they were little. And it was really fun because it was cool after the lions would roar. You don't hear him roar in the middle of the afternoon, but the lions are roaring. You could hear him through the whole thing. One day we almost lost Thaddeus because he wanted to go hear the lions roar again, took off to go hear the lions roar. He's this big. He's only a little bigger now, but I mean, took off in the middle of the zoo. Wanted to hear the lions roar. You can hear him roar forever. It's intimidating, out to five miles. And lions can run real fast, 50 miles an hour. But you know how far they can go at 50 miles an hour? 300 meters. Their roar 
far outstrips the danger. Lions roar the same reason that people at a basketball game yell at the other team at the free throw line. To bluster, to distract, beat their chest a little, proclaim that they're better than everybody else. Lions do not roar when they hunt because that would be stupid. If this lion is hunting, he is a dumb lion. But he is blustering, and he would eat you if you laid yourself down on a plate and handed him the fork and the knife. But you can hear him coming, right? Five miles. That's why you need to be on the alert. So a dumb lion doesn't find you as a snack, but he's not hunting you. You understand that the, he's looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone. The, the devil devours everyone. You can sign your life away to the devil as an unbeliever. You can commit your life to Satan, to serving his interests to being a terrible, horrible person, to literally spilling human blood and flesh on his behalf, and he will eat you in the end. It is not just a thing that is dangerous to believers. Satan will consume anybody. He's the adversary. See, I was told the picture was different, right? I, I... Again, a dumb lion roars while he hunts. It's a dumb lion. He's giving you plenty of warning. You don't even have to be that alert. You could be three seconds from dead and still hear a lion roar and be alert enough to do that. But he is walking about. He wants you to acknowledge his authority. He wants you to hear the bluster. And if you get frightened and fall over, he'll eat you. He'll eat you. That's why we need to be alert. But the danger... I guess is less imminent than what I was told growing up. I just want to make that clear. Because if the danger was real, so, so let's use the illustration, let's bring it down to brass tacks a little bit. So say you're in Africa. Ooh, even better. Say you're in the lion's pen, like we thought Thaddeus might be in the San Antonio Zoo. And the lion roars at you, and he's close enough to hurt you, to eat you, what do you do? Get out of the lion's pen. Right? What are you told to do here? Resist him. Firm in your faith. Standing firm in your faith. 
I find myself in a literal lion's den, I'm not going to stand still. I'm not going to resist him. It's kind of a noisy, toothless lion, huh? The devil is. His bark is definitely worse than his bite. Because you're supposed to stand and resist. Firm in your faith. Not firm with your 375 H&H or whatever it is, right? Not with your big game rifle. Your faith is sufficient to stand firm in the face of all this bluster. That's why we need to be alert. We're not supposed to run. We're supposed to be aware, supposed to be focused, supposed to expect that. To be on the alert, free of anxiety, free from pride, firm in our faith. Resist him, firm in your faith. Now, admittedly, y'all, have y'all heard a lion roar in person? Like, in, in, the only time I've ever heard it is in the zoo, and I don't know if that was like the second-hand lion, right? Y'all, have y'all seen that movie? Great movie, wonderful movie. You should watch it if you haven't. But the second-hand lion won't even come out of the crate, much less roar, right, until the very end. So I don't know if that was even that impressive of a roar. I imagine this is supposed to be impressive. You may not think that you can do this. He says, stand firm in your faith, knowing, or while knowing, it could be temporal, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being brought to their perfection, I would say, not just accomplished. Epiteleo. You might recognize the word telo. To telestai, it is finished, it's completed. The finish line is crossed. There are believers all over this world suffering just this way successfully, bringing God's purpose to completion to the end of their human temporal lives on this earth in the face of just this bluster. They're bringing it to completion, fulfillment. They're achieving God's purpose. It's something that the church in the United States needs to acknowledge we're, we're foolish. We talk about the biggest, church, biggest mega church in the world, and we think that's in the United States. It's in China. It's in China. And it's mostly pastored by people behind bars. It makes Lakewood Church look like a Sunday school class with as many zeros as are behind it. Other parts of the world would laugh at something with a thousand people in it called a megachurch. Usually the difference is the amount of suffering in the church. When I say that we should not shy away from the purpose that God has in our suffering, I'm serious. Many churches actually don't seem to have the choice in a way but God blesses those who suffer for doing what is right it's always better Peter told us already 
but we're not alone. You know, and functionally, Church of the United States, you know, it's similar. What was it that uh, Joe Biden said he had a kitchen fire when he was trying to express empathy for the fires in Hawaii? Y'all all thought that was stupid, didn't you? Dumb as a bag of hammers and a box of rocks having kids together. I mean, it is as bad as it gets how stupid that was. But you know how stupid we are? We compare somebody saying bad things about me as a pastor, stubbing my toe for Jesus, to getting our heads lopped off in the Middle East on a beach. We're stupid. Equating those two things. And yes, I just equated the church in the United States to Joe Biden. I wish I didn't really have to. But on that front, we are equally as dumb. Mentally deficient. I don't even want to say dumb. It's not dumb. Mentally deficient. all over the world are people who are suffering successfully and bringing this to its finish line. Fulfilling, perfecting the purpose that choice aliens have in the world. And he says this, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, a little while, maybe your whole human lifetime, 70 or 80 years, but a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will future indicative it's not now but it is absolutely future that's what that means future indicative verb he will do this will himself perfect you he will confirm strengthen and establish you Now, he's not just running out of room at the end of the parchment, okay? Those words have significance to us. Right now, your identity is perfect, but your experience is not. Your beginning is perfect. Your ending is perfect. Here in the middle, we are growing. But God guarantees that we will be perfect so that we can and will receive our perfect inheritance. That's the problem with you getting the perfect, ready, reserved inheritance, right? Is because you cannot possess something that is perfect, ready, and reserved and heavenly yet. Any arguments there? You can't. It's guaranteed to you in the future, and God is guaranteeing you that you will be perfect, will be future, not now. perfect. The first time we see that in the New Testament is actually very literal. The the fishermen are mending their nets. That was before they all made them with slave labor in China. You just bought a new one. They had to fix them. Restoring to its original purpose is the idea in the literal meaning Luke 6.40, Jesus speaks of the disciples. 
when, he, when they are fully trained, he says they are, they are perfect. The disciple is not above his master, but when he is fully trained, he shall be like him, saying that in the end you will be like Christ as much as the created can be like the uncreated. When we see him, we will be like him, John tells us. When we see him as he truly is, we will be like him. Something also future. We will be perfect, lacking in nothing. That's future, that is to come. This is to confirm or to, to make it steadfast, immovable. Are you immovable now? I'm pretty intractable. It's a fancy word for stubborn. And on a day when I'm feeling really sanctified, I say steadfast. There will come a day where you will not, the pressure against you will be irrelevant. You will not move. You will be strong. You'll be strong, he says. Strengthened. You feel strong today? At the apex of my physical strength, I had a bunch of old guys telling me, don't do that, you're going to regret it. I now believe them. I'm at the point of regretting it. I have not yet come to the point of acknowledging it, that I'm not that strong anymore, but I feel those aches and pains. That's not your future. You will be strong. But I like this last one. He will do these things. Remember, these are still a future. He will lay your foundations. He will establish you. See, we're so focused on, on just getting to be with Jesus, we don't think about what lies after that. Um, a dear saint that wrote many books, Earl Rodmacher, used to say that this is training time for reigning time. God has a massive massive purpose and plan for us in eternity that is not something we can even comprehend. And all of this, all of First Peter, all of suffering for doing what is right, keeping our behavior excellent among the nations, pursuing the unfading crown of glory for the elders, noobs, obeying the, all of that stuff that you and I don't really want to hear. We just want to eat our Cheetos, watch our football, drink our beer, and let the world leave us alone and go to heaven when we die. Right? Because even on Monday, that sounds pretty good. Leave me the heck alone. Let me have my snacks. And I don't watch football, you all know that. But whatever I want to watch. I watch nerdy things on YouTube, like how did colonial America cook and stuff weird like that. They cooked weird. Weird ingredients, weird stuff. But I like it. I dig it. That's what I do to relax. But we understand, then, from a text like this, that all of this faithfulness that God asks us for is the foundation for that tremendous, majestic, glorious purpose that is so glorious, He doesn't really give us a ton of details about it. Again, because I don't think we would comprehend it. But we'll need to be strong. We'll need to be perfect. 
We'll need to be confirmed, established, for that foundation to be of use, to live prophetically, to understand what God, to entrust ourselves, Peter said, to a faithful creator who knows better than we do. Oh, now your narcissist is going to come back out because Americans don't think anybody knows better than we do. Texans least of all, right? Texans. But God knows better than I do. And he has this in my future. It's to come. We have so much left. So much left. I'm thankful for this. You know, my my dad passed away in 2019 at 63 years of age. I have never met a man more committed to tinkering and expanding his hobbies. And I believe God honors the personalities he created in eternity. What is is eternity going to be like for a guy like my dad? Unlimited opportunities for creativity. Unlimited opportunities to learn that weird stuff that I watch on YouTube slowly. He can learn it perfectly. To build and grow and master and develop and be everything that God has provided for his personality and unique creation to be. Of course, most of you all think that I'll just be the most boring person in eternity because that's all that I can be. That's okay. But my dad wasn't boring, and I'm thankful for this truth. He will make him strong, give him foundation for eternity to be the fullness of what God has designed him to be. This is the end of the letter. We have nothing but the salutation. This is my son's favorite part of the book, because I'm just going to actually mostly just read it, mostly. All right through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All of it. All of it is God's favor expressed on his children. Everything from the things that are guaranteed in the future that require nothing of us, the suffering for doing what is right because of living prophetically for the future, knowing what God has in store for us, in the broad category that is all God's grace upon us, and we are to stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, choice together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark, here's the junior high boy's favorite verse in the whole Bible. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I'm not kidding. They love the verse. You should see them try to apply it. Bunch of goobers. It is cultural, I think, to some extent. The idea is... You're supposed to greet one another with affection. A needed reminder, isn't it? 
We sometimes get irritated by each other. Nobody can irritate you more than your siblings. Amen? A reminder, sincere affection should be expressed. But peace be to you all who are in Christ. Stand firm. And peace be to you all. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the way that your word is communicated to us, that we have it, this objective. We're able to study it and understand it, what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, that the message is attainable and understandable and applicable, relevant to us in the way that you have presented it. We thank you for that. We thank you for your grace upon us and the peace that we can have in this life. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll dismiss with a song. Would you stand? Nothing as strong as our God is Our God is alive